Hi, this is Jeff Cobert, and we welcome you to this Disney Insights Podcast. As part of the 25th anniversary of Disney's Animal Kingdom, we want to talk about how this park came to be and the leaders that made it happen. I had the privilege of meeting back up with Rick Baranji, the first animal care zookeeper hired by Imagineering to develop and make Disney's Animal Kingdom a reality. We talk about Roy E. Disney, Michael Eisner, Frank Wells, and Imagineers like Craig Russell, Paul Comstock, and of course, Joe Rohde. He shares the role Jane Goodall played in supporting the park and of adventures in constructing it. Join us as we talk about the pioneers of Disney's Animal Kingdom, who were the leaders that truly made this park a reality that we know and love today. Of course, this podcast is supported by Performance Journeys, where we provide you souvenirs and insights as to how to make your organization better. Please check out performancejourneys.com. And know that as, um, well, first of all, thank you. Thank you to those who have been listening to this podcast. We appreciate your support and we appreciate it when you take the time to subscribe share with others, and even provide a positive rating or review. You're definitely going to want to seek out DisneyInsights.com as we have images and an outline that, oh, and links, lots of links that support today's podcast. Let's begin first with kind of a timeline for Disney's Animal Kingdom. This is a reference to a post I had done some time ago, but it gives you context for the interview I'm going to have with Rick during this podcast because it it helps you understand how this came to be. It did you don't just wish it and it happens. It takes quite quite a while to make it a reality, really the better part of 10 years. In 1989, in May of that year, the Disney MGM Studios opened as the third park in Walt Disney World. Following in the shadows of the Magic Kingdom in Epcot, this was the first park opened up under the Michael Eisner, Frank Wells era. Now, if you're not familiar, most people know who Michael Eisner is. Frank Wells was president while Michael Eisner was CEO, and together they were an important partnership. As you uh, read and see in many of my um, books and other podcasts that I've shared, that uh, park, Disney MGM Studios, had such huge crowds that in trying to open earlier, to accommodate the number of people coming, that the park was sometimes filled and had to turn away people before the stated opening time. In short order, Michael was convinced that another fourth gate was needed. There were many ideas that Michael saw, but none held his interest more than doing something with animals. He felt that Disney could do to the zoo world what Walt had done to the amusement park world. Joe Rohde came into the picture early on as a lead Imagineer. Joe established a team of about seven or eight Imagineers. Recognizing early on that Imagineering knew very little about the care and keeping of animals, Joe sought out uh, Bill Conway, a very well-respected individual who was the executive director of the Bronx Zoo. We're gonna refer to him in the conversation later. Bill flew out a couple of times and visited with Joe but ultimately had to go back to his zoo and focus on his work. He suggested that they contact Rick Bronji out at the San Diego Zoo. 
1990, Rick received a call from Joe's assistant asking for help. An early idea was that the experience would include a safari trek, and they wanted Rick's ideas about how to make that happen. Remember, San Diego already um, had a safari trek, and Rick had spent time in New Jersey with Warner Brothers' Jungle Habitat, as well as the Lion King Safari in Southern California. He had some good insight about how to make that trek succeed. Initially, for the first couple of years, it was simply a couple of trips back and forth to Imaginary in Glendale, California. When it seemed they were more interested in his providing long-term consulting, Rick asked Doug Myers, head of the San Diego Zoo, whether it was okay. Doug was fine with it, as long as the project wasn't being built in California in competition with the San Diego Zoo. In 1991, at this point, the park project is still very secretive. But Rick argues that more animal experts are needed to make the kinds of decisions being bantered about. Rick gets to bring a few more animal experts on board. Joe Rohde is now party to ongoing discussions about whether this animal could be in the same space as that animal or how many fit into a hippo pond. Rick at that time reflected, quote, if anything, I think Joe really liked me because I was open to possibilities. Others would say it couldn't be done, but I kept asking, well, why not? End of quote. In 1992, Rick is still working as a consultant part-time on the project. Joe is convinced this park is going to get greenlit. Um, a highlight at this time is when Michael and Jane Eisner come down to the San Diego Zoo to visit. Rick gives them a personal tour and gets to know Michael and his passion for doing the project. In 93, after working several years as a part-time consultant, Rick is finally offered a permanent position with the Walt Disney Company. Rick's role will not only be to oversee the development of Disney's Animal Kingdom, but to also oversee all of Disney's animal operations to include the Living Seas and Discovery Island. Discovery Island isn't what isn't quite yet the island in the middle of Disney's Animal Kingdom. This was an island in Bay Lake that had um, a, a number of um, f uh, birds and smaller animals, and, um, and he headed that up as well. Plans are further developed for the park with the intent of making an announcement in 1994. So here comes 1994, and this was supposed to be the big year that the park would be announced along with an opening date for 97. But it also became known as the year that everything fell apart. First came the untimely accident and death of Frank Wells. He being a champion of the park, Frank's absence left a hole that was really difficult to fill. Michael Eisner's subsequent heart attack and then the resignation of Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was head of the studio, muddied the water further, making it difficult to go ahead with the top levels of the organization. If it wasn't hard enough, the economy suffered, softened, lessening um, attendance at the parks. In that wake, it was difficult to get the energy to go ahead. Richard Danula, who I believe was CFO at the time, told Eisner, quote, I just don't believe that adding another park is going to prompt our guests to extend their visits another day. At a time when we're already struggling, the much greater possibility is that it will cannibalize attendance from our other parks, end of quote. Eisner stated he understood the view, but they disagreed emotionally. Quote, Eisner said, 
Standing still was not an option. Either you take calculated risks to grow or you slowly wither and die. End of quote. In 1995, it was hard on the team to wait another year. Rick took solace from Joe, who never believed the project would die. But one important thing waiting um, did was that it allowed the team to learn some important lessons from another project that took a dagger in 1994. Disney's America was a theme park project idea Michael loved perhaps more than any. Judson Green, the head of Disney Parks, along with his team, spent a lot of time trying to get the community out in Virginia to support the project, but learned uh, most of those lessons a little too late in the timeline. That park idea would be abandoned, but those lessons would be applied to Disney's Animal Kingdom. Again, Rick suggested an Animal Conservation Advisory Board to Judson and Joe. This was unusual because Disney normally does not include outsiders in the development of a new park. Still, it was a great idea given lessons with Disney's America. This was one of the best parts of Rick's job. He, uh, people he had seen as mentors, whom he long respected, were invited to be part of this group. They in turn became Disney's best defense against critics who would argue against the project. Judson would give his personal time to work one-on-one -on -one with this advisory group. In 1996, up until this time, Rick was living in San Diego, getting in a car early on Monday mornings, driving up for the week to work off Flower Street in Glendale, California. Now the operation moves east. Rick moves from California to Orlando, Florida. He's neighbors with Judson Green, and he spends a great deal of time working with him. Among his peers in the zoo world, there are two opinions. Quote, one, Rick is crazy for getting involved with this project in the first place. Or, two, Rick is the luckiest guy on the earth to do a project with Disney. In time, it would definitely be the latter. But at this point, everything is simply dirt and trenches in the ground as the park is still two years away from completion. In 1997, it's during these same years that Rick hired many of the key managers as well as some of the keepers. The great thing with the Disney name is that Rick was able to obtain some of the best professionals in the zoo industry, much to the chagrin of those zoo directors losing their people. In the end, Rick hires some people, hires people from some 69 zoos across the country, and many of these zoos involve multiple hires. There is now a new cast of animal experts within the ranks of Disney. Finally, in 1998, Disney's Animal Kingdom opens with the rest, uh, well, and the rest is history. Eisner summed it up as well. He said, quote, whatever doubts we may once have had about Disney Animal Kingdom's viability were answered on April 22nd, 1998, when the park opened. The crowds were so large that we were forced to close our gates to further guests by 9 a.m., over the next few months, attendance has exceeded every expectation, and the ratings from guests are the highest we've received for any park in our history. In a way, the Animal Kingdom takes us full circle. 30 years ago, all you could find on our Orlando property were vast herds of grazing animals and some rather intimidating reptiles. Today, after billions of dollars investment, we have unveiled our most original theme park concept yet, vast herds of grazing animals and rather intimidating 
reptiles. End of quote. Indeed, it is kind of a circle of life thing. And it was for Rick as well. By the time the park opened, Rick had moved on with the Imagineering team to develop Disney's Animal Kingdom Lodge. Originally, Rick thought he would handle operations or animal operations when the park opens. It became a role that Beth Stevens would be offered by Bob Lamb. Beth came from Zoo Atlanta and was originally recruited by Rick. Um, Rick will talk about that, but and the lessons he learned from that experience. Um, and then today, Rick is with Longneck Manor. He, um, with a, a stint in between of really being responsible for the Houston Zoo. So we're gonna talk a little bit about that in our conversation. So without further ado, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's talk with Rick Barangi about not only his experience, but of the people who really made Disney's Animal Kingdom a reality. It's just great to see you again. And I appreciate you taking the time to do this. This is that was so that was such a coincidence to to see each other like that. That was really very unusual. I was I, I saw this group coming toward me and I said, Oh, it looks like an event group. I could see these badges. And I I I I went and stared at one badge and then looked up at the face, and it was you of all the people with badges. There was you. So I thought we don't need no lousy stinking badges. <laughs> we don't need that. No lousy stinking badges. <laughs> yeah, really. But, uh, well, so I just wanted to take, I, you know, I really felt like, and, and I've had an opportunity to interview you before, and we've talked about some things. I thought this would be a great opportunity to capture the, who were those pioneers? Who were those people who made this happen? And because I don't think we have enough stories about those individuals. Of course, everyone knows Joe Rody. Um, and that's great, but there were many who made that happen, and we'll talk about Joe as well. But but yeah, let's go back to uh, that uh, event where we met up with each other. That was your first time in a little while back at Disney's Animal Kingdom. Am I correct? Oh yeah, I I, I don't remember when I was. I, I know I was there for a meeting, so I did get to see Avatar, and that you know that okay. uh, ride. So it couldn't have been. It, that's only been there like five or six years, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I must have been back for that. But it was the first time I was on the safari in in like 15 years. And, you know, I I, I was. Uh, so what uh, were your impressions? I mean, what was going through your mind as you're going through 25 years of this thing? Plus the other plus the other 10 that, that got us out the gate, you know, eight, eight to 10 for you. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I guess. Um, it, it was a very nice event. Uh you know, it was the operations team, which I worked with, but I was more on the Imagineering side, even though I worked for the operations. I, I was hired to work with the Imagineers and then to, uh, you know, operate the park. But my strength was certainly more in 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 designing uh, designing the facility. It's a uh, there was a guy at uh, at Disney, Dieter. Do you remember Dieter, oh, yeah. the restaurant guy? Yeah, great guy. Yeah, he you reinvented me, the the whole rest dining experience. Oh, I love Dieter, you know, and he moved to Panama and he was a great guy, always a very very fit, very in shape guy. And and he said to me one time, Rick, he said, the team that builds it really isn't the best team to run it. Run it. They're very different people. And I said, Yeah. And he was right. I, I I mean, I was much better at the front end than I was after it opened. And and we had better people for that. But uh, but, you know, you say we'll talk about other people, but flat out, 
no questions. I, I would never deny this to anybody that Joe Rody is the reason we have Animal Kingdom. There's no other reason. Michael Eisner loved Joe Rody and believed in him. And we had Michael Eisner too, who wanted, and Frank Wells. We'll talk about him in a minute too. Yeah. But they believed in this and they believed in Joe. Joe Rody almost single-handedly, you know, he was a rising star. This was his biggest project. And Joe was easy to work with. People will say, oh, well, Joe, he talks a lot. Yeah, he talks a lot because he talks <laughs> because nobody can speak like Joe. N nobody can be that inspired. The other Imagineers used to ask him the, to present their projects because he was such a good, you know. Uh, he articulates that, in a way that just nobody else does. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's over the top, but he's amazing. One of our, our our major advisor, Bill Conway, he was, uh, you know, on the advisor. He was the, mm -hmm. he was the CEO of the Bronx Zoo. And, and yeah, he did, and he was the one who recommended you. Too. Yeah, he recommended me the and then he original. came on the advisory board only because I asked him because he said no originally. He <laughs> said to me, he said to Joe Rody one time, Joe, you could sell snowballs to an Eskimo. <laughs> <laughs> that advisory committee was, I think, a really very much a brainchild of yours, wasn't it? I mean, you were very much at the front of that. And yeah, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not, I, I don't, it's hard to. When you take credit for something, you you gotta you gotta qualify and say, hey, yeah, maybe maybe I was it was my idea and I moved it along the most, but it couldn't have happened without Judson Green and Joe Rody supporting me. There's no way, you know. I mean, sure, you, anybody can have a good idea and say and 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 then take credit for it, but to get it implemented, you need a team of people. Uh, but but Bill Conway was by far the most influential advisor in that group. Him and Russ Mittemeyer. You know, a lot of them have passed away. Bill's gone. Bill Burnham's mm. gone. Roger Karras is gone. Mike Hutchins is gone. Mm. Uh, you know, we lost some of the, some, they were my friends, you know? So, so that, 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 you know, when I started thinking about that, I, I, I was a little bit more, I, I wasn't, I was more uh, just a little sad that these people were gone and, you know, couldn't see it today. The ones that are around need to give them credit. And, and, and I guess somebody said, you know, uh, uh, history is hi history's history is written by the people that know how to write, I guess, or, or live long enough. You know, the others, if, if you don't write about it, then you don't get credit. And then the people <laughs> that write about it give themselves too much credit. So Disney was a group effort, no matter what. Yes, the advisory team was my suggestion and Joe Rohde's totally supported me. And but Judson was the one that backed it because normally Disney doesn't bring in outside advisors at that stage in a project. It was supposed mm. to be very secret, but Judson, Judson made the exception and, and because, and, and Judson became very, very supportive of conservation. He understood it. He got it. And was so, that and, a reflection? Judson, was that a reflection yeah. a little bit about uh, the fact that uh, Disney's America uh, had kind of been shot down by um by conservationists, by the public, by you know, by people in the in the greater Virginia area, and they and they needed a different approach to get um, buy-in. Yeah, well, they were very different because I mean that was off-site, that was other land they bought, and mm -hmm. and I was involved in it a little bit. I mean, they brought me in a couple of times because because we had a hiatus for about a year when Frank Wells passed away. Strategic planning guys decided, you know, they were always. Uh, questioning the questions always uh, overshadowed any commitment so <laughs> so they delayed the project the whole year i won't mention wow. the head of that 
that that guy he was he, he uh, no but, he, that but, was the first he, thing to go when eisner left and bob Iger came in was was oh, yeah, putting it was getting guys. rid of that team so yeah so i get that because when frank died the project got delayed a year and, and but they kept me on so i i i, I went i went and 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 talked with i what was the imagineer russ he's still there russ uh uh craig russell craig russell oh, okay yeah, great guy. He still does a lot for. He's still at Disney. Head, he's the head guy, I guess. Greg. Well, I think there anyway, was a farm component in. to that. To that uh, attraction. Yeah, and they got they did get defeated by uh, you know land uh, conservationists, but it was really wealthy people that wanted to still do fox hunts and stuff like that. You know, <laughs> the, the property their property values would go down with a theme park there. So I don't think it helped or hurt what we were doing because they were always going to do a fourth gate at Disney World. They had this. 500 acre piece of property that was used mostly was a cow pasture you know it, there wasn't a lot orange of groves and cow pasture flat yeah that's all it was. i mean i i used to, i stood out there with joe in 1990 and there was nothing out there you know th my first trip through there was about a year and a half before opening with paul comstock in a truck and yeah. so um and i gotta tell you i think second to joe paul as an imagineer i mean when you go through that that space it is about nature and and paul built nature you know in that in that park uh any any standout stories that you had with uh with paul i like paul a lot you know paul paul was from a rock band you know and he, he was you know he, he was way out there sometimes but he's really smart right and uh, and he had a different type of personality there were two stories about him uh, one was you know he was designing it he didn't care about the animals eating the habitat. He was just going to put in everything. And I said, and I looked at him, I said, you know, this is just a buffet table for the animals. He says, I don't care. I'll just replace it. He had an unlimited budget. And uh, the place looks beautiful because of Paul Comstock. You know, there's no question about that. But he started putting in stuff before, you know, before everything was done. So other contractors would would drive uh, uh, some of his plants and stuff. I knew he had pitched a tent on the top of the of the mountain so we could see how oh, the yeah. light he, hit he, the grasslands. He used to camp out there, you know? Yeah. Uh, communing with nature or, or whatever else he was smoking. <laughs> I don't know what he was doing out there. But, but he like collected I said, he, a lot of seeds. So <laughs> He's a great guy. He's a, yeah. yeah. He was a fan of a lot of different vegetation. But uh, so the three people, three people I definitely got to talk about. Let's let's start with Judson Green. Um, really head of parks and resorts during that time period, did a lot of trying to keep the, the wheels moving where he could. Um, yeah, and what were Judson, your memories of, of Judson? Judson was bright enough to run the whole company. Uh, and mm. He and Michael Amen. weren't always on the same page. Judson would take risks. Uh, he was a risk taker. And uh, but he was a brilliant financial mind. Plus, he was a concert pianist, which is, you know, he did jazz. Had a jazz band. Yeah. And he, and he taught jazz and leadership. Uh, you know, he, he yeah. had these programs and he was very nice to me. I took him and his family to Africa back in the uh, late 90s uh, before he left the company. He was on his way out at that point. You know, it was politics and stuff. Yeah. Uh, but uh, he was uh, he was a huge supporter of the park and and. Also, he became, he then went on the board of the New York Zoological Society, the Bronx Zoo. Oh, really? So he was on that board. He was a Conservation International. Uh, was was uh, well, no, he was Conservation International. I think he was involved with Conway too. But Judson was, you know, a Renaissance man, just brilliant. And and in Africa too, you know, he's he's always 
looking for animals and concentrating on stuff. Uh, he he was uh, he and Joe Rody. Joe Joe made it happen, but Judson Judson made it really special. He he understood the conservation ethic of the park and how important and how different this park was. He he let the park do things, raise money for conservation causes where other parks uh, wanted to do that, but but didn't. He made exceptions for the animal kingdom, and uh, and I'll always respect him for that. As as you know, he passed away about, yeah. uh, over a year great, ago. Now. Great 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 um, great leader. Um, Frank Wells and Michael Eisner, you've had moments where you interspersed with them. What what memories do you carry of the two of them? Uh, I watched them twice together. And one time they introduced me to Frank, who was older than Michael. And I mean, they know that everybody knows the story about them, you know, preventing, yeah. saving the company. And Frank yeah. said, I don't mind being president. Michael, you can be CEO. Frank yeah. had no ego. But Michael at that point was like the top CEO, one of the tops in the world. Okay. He was the most admired guy, you know, and, and Frank was the, when they're in meetings, he always deferred to Frank. Frank was the risk taker. My, Michael, Michael loved to do things, but Frank was the one that said, yeah, we'll do this. And Frank was incredible about conservation. He got everything, you know, when he passed away, that's why the park got delayed because Michael didn't have his, you know, it, it wasn't like his right hand man. They were they were they were equals. It was one of the few instances where you can say dual leadership works. It worked for those two. There was a bond there that, you know, it, it it's not for me to explain because it was special to them. And he deferred to, to Frank all the time. And Frank was so well respected in Hollywood and in other circles. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I wish I would have known him better because uh, he he really was so supportive. Roy Disney was also. Roy Disney. Oh was my here. goodness! Yes, please tell me your experience with Roy. Well, I spent a lot more time with Roy. He sat in on the meetings with us, and he was very soft spoken. You know, Roy. He was just super nice, and he he was very nice to me. And I used to get Christmas cards uh, from him. Uh, you know, after he left Disney hmm. too, and he died. He died too young too, but he. You know, he was so inspired. His, he said the best time of his whole life at Disney was doing True Life Adventures, producing those. He said that was the most fun he's ever had and probably ever. And and he was a real strong conservationist on the board of the Peregrine Fund where Bill Burnham came, was one of our advisors. And I just love talking to Roy. I mean, Roy would tell me so, uh, great stories. Roy treated everybody equal. He didn't, you know, it didn't matter who you were. There was no status with him. And Everybody loved Roy. It's hard to say anything. Bare. They underestimated Roy. I'll tell you that he was smarter than people thought. Much smarter. Well, so soft-spoken. He's he's not an individual yeah. who ran up to take credit. And you know, it's interesting because those through life adventures really did pave the way for Disney's Animal Kingdom years later. I mean, it just it just seemed like they were the the storybooks that created kind of the the whole concept for. For creating that, that sooner or that later, sooner or later they were going to do something with live animals, you know, because they they had so much success with. Yeah, you're right. It it was the catalyst or the precursor of the animal kingdom. It, it the animal kingdom was controversial though because you know animals die and you're going to have you're going to have issues. Uh, Mickey Mouse lives forever, so um, <laughs> they were a little hesitant at first, but everybody was all in, and but they knew they didn't want to be just a zoo. 
you, you're charging a lot more than a zoo, so you better offer. So we had real imaginary and uh, and uh, prehistoric, you know, a- animals. If you could be one place at Disney's Animal Kingdom right now, what would be that one place you would be at? The, what one place would you stand in that would say this 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 is what the park represents to me? Well, it would be the savanna for sure. You know, a- any place in that savanna. Uh, it brought back memories. Uh, l- looking at the elephant exhibit and the, the and the baobab trees and just that that scenery and no no invisible barriers. Uh, the pride rock where the uh, lions are. It doesn't mm. look there's a moat there, you know, and it's twenty foot wide. You can't even <laughs> see it. The hippo exhibit was the most challenging. Maybe nobody had put that many hippos together, and the way we did it, it, it really looked like Africa. So any anything on the the, the the Kilimanjaro Safari is definitely, and, and that's what they hired me for, you know, the animal side. So that was it. And then the other memory would be, I was up in the Tree of Life, you know, about 100 feet up in it when they were building it. And I, used to, I took Jane Goodall up there, just the two of us. Mm. There was no way around because they wouldn't have let us do it. <laughs> and Jane loved it. And, and I've told you that story before when she said, yeah. there's no chimp in the tree. And, and now, now there's David Graybeard in, in down, the down at the entrance to tough to be a bug. So, so what a perfect tribute to her and, and um, an amazing individual who, who lent her support to the whole. Yeah. Um, when you, when you could season. sit up in that tree, I wish we put an elevator. We should have done a honeymoon suite like they did in the magic and uh, in, in Cinderella's castle. We should have put something inside <laughs> that you could look out. Swiss family treehouse up there. That would have been the ultimate. I'd take that over the castle any night. Well, if you talk to Joe Rohde, his original design had that tree of life. They had a whole second plateau up there and they had a restaurant up there. Oh, you no could kidding. take an elevator. Yeah, the, the tree was even bigger. <laughs> wow. Go figure. Well, so... So life moved on for you, and we really worked mostly together at uh, Houston Zoo, where you led um, a lot of work that a major expansion to what was a um, a city zoo that really became more of a um, privately held, public privately held enterprise. But wow, some great things that you brought into the Houston Zoo, and still great things happening over there. But now you are dealing with tell me about how you got to long neck manor how did that uh how did that happen for you yeah it was the evolution of why i'm doing this now it's just a compilation of all my experiences i've worked in mostly big places you know san diego mm. disney houston you're getting thousands of people a day coming in right and you can do a lot uh you can personalize the experience to some extent but you can't do what i'm doing and offer it to everybody. So I, so after all those big places, I always dreamed if I was, if I was tired early enough, if I was healthy, if I had the money and uh, you know, I don't have any kids. So, uh, and my wife was fine with doing it. So, so I had been dreaming about this. People say for, I've been talking about it for 20 years. No kidding. So, and uh, I, I said, if I could do something smaller and there was a place in Africa, there is a place called Giraffe Manor where People can stay in the draft, stick their head in the window in the mm-hmm. dining room. And I said, you know, that's pretty cool. We could do something like that here, but not just with giraffes. And and th- that was a for-profit hotel at the time. And uh, I said, I want to do something nonprofit, smaller, but giraffes, everybody loves giraffes. And uh, elephants are too political and, and too dangerous. <laughs> so, but rhinos, p- 
people don't give them enough attention and they're really cool animals and, and they're, and they can be really gentle and you, you can, you can get up and they love to be scratched. You just have to be careful how you, you know, you don't get your hand. <laughs> they don't wow. lean against bars. So I said, I'll, I'll do it with rhinos and giraffes. I'll start with that. I'm not going to do a traditional zoo. And, and I just kept formulating it. And then we had this property in, in, in the hill country of Texas. And if you don't know Texas- Which is like, Fredericksburg is almost like the savannah of Africa. It just has very, this look that just it's works. Very, it's very much like some parts of Africa. And it's very pretty. You know, we're, you know, we're, more we're rolling about hills. a little over an hour from Austin, a little over an hour from San Antonio. But if you're from Texas- this is the weekend retreat that people come to. It's a charming mm. German town that now has grown into uh, the wine capital of Texas, the B&B capital of Texas. Uh, it's got a, a world-class museum of the Pacific that you know was dedicated by President George Bush, the first one, the the, the veteran, and then uh, and then it's got art galleries and incredible. It's it's and I'm five miles from that, but I'm in the country, and we also have. An incredible sky, you know. It's it's one of these dark sky designations. So when you go out on a a night when it's not cloudy, it's it's almost as you you see more stars than pretty much any other place that I've wow. been to. Very impressive, it, and I got to say, not just in conclusion, not just thank you for making Disney's Animal Kingdom a reality, but thank you for your love of nature and conservation and animal care uh you have been you have been really a leader of this for so many i'm not gonna date you here but for a lot of years you've been leading out on this and uh i thank you for that it uh it's it's a blessing to to our world so thank you well i appreciate it like i said it takes a team to whatever the animal kingdom was an incredible experience and uh uh uh, but now I'm doing my own thing here. I now I don't have now 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 when I talk to the boss, he listens to me. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, Rick. Appreciate all you right. taking thank the time. You. Well, thank and, you for you know for uh, all you've done to create awareness. I mean, if people listen to this and they get something out of it other than somebody just talking about themselves, that you know it's really about the animals. If we don't save nature, you know. Uh, we're not going to survive. You know, we need nature more than nature needs us because in the end, they're going to win. We got a small planet here. So let's take care of it. Well said. Well said. I mean, my brother-in-law or my son-in-law, my son-in-law actually drives the safaris every day. Oh, he's really? There. Yeah. Tall guy. And he's, he's doing the thing. He loves it. And uh, he knows all about the animals. And it's it's just really cool. I would I'd love to give a safari tour sometime. I like to get in the bus and just you should you should all the imagineers give jungle cruise tours you should get in there and you should give a safari tour yeah i don't think That'd they want I, I don't know what i would say but anyway i think i think joe could work that out for you yeah joe and i together that would be a comedy team right? <laughs> hey thanks really do appreciate it Ray. thanks jeff good talking to you see you soon all right, all Thank right. You. bye just a few notes about uh what we talked about if you go back a couple of podcasts to our 25th anniversary podcast of Disney's Animal Kingdom. You'll see how I actually ran into Rick uh, while I was there at that event. He, Rick has talked about several people in uh, this conversation. We talk a, a little bit about Paul Comstock, who is really one of the great landscapers of our time. You can find a link uh, to his site. Uh, Rick, Paul, uh, Paul's father, as I understood it, 
had a um, special uh, relationship with Evans, who really built out Disneyland originally with Walt Disney. And, and Paul just grew up among these great landscapers. And so really just brought all those talents to bear in uh, the development of uh, Disney's Animal Kingdom. In 2016, for the anniversary of Disney's Animal Kingdom and for Earth Day, Earth Day, I wrote a piece where Walt Disney and Jane Goodall intertwined for a National Geographic magazine. You're going to want to take a look at that. It's fascinating that both of these individuals are featured in the same magazine. And I think that's the first time Jane Goodall was actually brought to the forefront of international attention for her work. Uh, that she was doing. Finally, in honor of Judson Green, I did a post and podcast about the contribution of this man who passed away a few years ago. Um, and you can find some more Disney insights and souvenirs with with uh, listed under this one. This, as I title it, is the best and worst decision Michael Eisner ever made. Um, it is, um, so take a look at that post or especially listen to that podcast. And then finally, also, um, we'll provide a link on Long Neck Manor, which is a unique boutique resort that Rick has founded in Fredericksburg, uh, Texas. So take a look at that. In conclusion, let me just mention a couple of key things that Rick has talked about that I think are really great souvenirs for you to take back from this experience. First off, like Joe Rody, how good are you at selling an idea? Can you sell snowballs to an Eskimo? Can you make the vision of something come alive and, and really get people on board to it? Second, anyone can have a good idea, but do you have, are you surrounded by a team of people who can really make that idea happen to make it come alive? Third, what would dual leadership look like to you? We talked about not only Michael Eisner and Frank Wells, but we talked about the idea of how that kind of dual partnership, how would you partner to strengthen your ability to lead out? And then finally, like Rick's description of Roy E. Disney, do you treat others as an equal, no matter what their status is? I think those are some just really good takeaways. Our, my experience with Rick wasn't so much about Disney's Animal Kingdom, but it was later when he was at Houston Zoo. I worked with Houston Zoo. I worked with Brookfield Zoo. I worked with the Seattle Woodland Park Zoo, really helping them elevate the, the guest experience. It's part of what I do, as well as helping to develop leadership in organizations. And if you, uh, if you need support and help with that, be sure to reach out to us or through performancejourneys.com. We want to help you become the best you can be. Well, my very good thanks to Rick for taking the time to being on this podcast and just really appreciate you taking the time to listen. Check out our Wayfinder Society, which is our Patreon group. There are really wonderful interactive tools that help you develop as a leader and help you become the best you can, as well as explore all aspects of Disney, such as uh, Pandora, World of Avatar at Disney's Animal Kingdom. Be sure to check that out. And again, no matter where you are and what you do, always follow the compass of your heart. Have a great day. We'll see you real soon.